Amen. One of the uh, great things about those hymnals that we're using is that they keep a lot of those old hymns alive that are dying out. And in fact, songs like that by one of the great hymn writers, Horatius Bonner, are dying out. They're not being sung anymore. And so I'm thankful we have these hymnals where we can sing these great songs of the faith and keep them alive for at least a time longer. All right, we come now to God's holy and inerrant word. We come back to chapter 2. Essentially, as we've been walking through this letter, we've gone through three sections. The first section is the exordium, the first four verses, which speak of the glory and majesty and honor of Christ. And what will we say there? That there are, there's none like Him, right? He is glorious. He is amazing. Think of all that's said there, that He is the perfect prophet and priest and king, that He is the heir of all things. He's been appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also God made the world, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, who upholds all things by the word of His power. This one who by Himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much greater than the angels as He has by inheritance received a more excellent name than they. All of that is told to us in those first four verses. And it sets the stage, doesn't it, for who Christ is and If you believe and place faith in what is said there, then you have the argument of the letter, in essence. But the author goes on in verses 5 through 14 of the first chapter to continue to exposit an idea. And he goes back through seven Old Testament scriptures. I'm careful not to say Hebrew scriptures. Of course, it is the Hebrew word, but he's quoting the Septuagint, isn't he? He's quoting the Greek Old Testament. And that is quite important. And as he quotes it, he establishes a central theme that Christ is greater than the angels. Now, this isn't controversial to us. It wasn't in one sense controversial uh, to the Jewish Christians he's writing to, but he's reminding them of something very important, that Christ is of a higher dignity and glory than even the angels. And if that's true, which it is, so I should say since that is true, He goes on to this next point, which is to say that if the angels mediated the old covenant and Christ is greater than them, then doesn't it stand to reason that this new covenant must be greater than the old since he is the single and sole mediator of it? Now that is really what he gets to in the third section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, after having kind of exposited or, or gone through this midrashic argument At the end of chapter 1, or really about two-thirds of chapter 1, he comes to these four verses we just spent a month in. And it's a warning, an exhortation, a warning, an encouragement not to miss what is plainly before you. And there are several points to this warning, aren't there? First of all, be careful about drifting from what you've been taught. Pay extra heed, more careful attention to the things that you've been taught. Why? Because there's a danger of drifting away from those things. If we don't stay anchored to the truth, anchored to God's Word, we will drift away. That's the warning. Also, there is a a warning that goes alongside it, parallel to it, of not neglecting so great a salvation. And of course, what is being reasoned there, if you look at it again, is that 
you cannot neglect this salvation if you recognize that Christ mediated it. If the old covenant was mediated doubly by Moses and by angels, and it carried penalties for those who neglected it and disobeyed it, how much sterner will the consequences be for those who neglect God's own Son? So again, it's a warning. How shall we escape, he says, if we neglect so great a salvation? The salvation which was first spoken as a completed work by the Lord Himself, then confirmed by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. So that's how we got to where we're at now. Those three movements, if you will. An exordium on the glory of Christ, an argument that, that Christ is greater than the angels, proven by seven Old Testament passages, and then this warning. And now we come to the text for today. So let's look at it one more time. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, as we think about this text today, I want us to consider three points Uh, that are really three things this author gives us in his argument here. First of all, there is a statement, and you'll see that in verse 5. Second of all, there is a reference. He bases his statement on a scriptural reference, which we'll look at in the following verses. And then finally, an interpretation. We want to see that how we would interpret this is exactly how he tells us to interpret it in the text itself. So as we begin today, we want to begin, first of all, by looking at that statement that's given to us. It's the first thing given to us. It's the first thing we're going to look at. So what is the statement? He says, in essence, God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. That's clearly what he says, plainly what he says. Now, it's interesting that verse 5 immediately begins in most of our English translations with for or because, and that's because the word in Greek is gar, and it's a conjunction. It means Based on what's been said before, here's what will be said. Now, there's a question we must immediately deal with. What does that gar anchor back to? And so it could be the previous verse. That God has bore witness, co-testified with signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will, such that, or for, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. That doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Some people tie it back to verses three about uh, verses two and three about this salvation, so great a salvation, uh, and he says, then again, that's the case. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Again, doesn't flow to me that way, and it would interrupt the very argument he's making in verses two, one through four. So I'm with John Brown. I'll tell you when I believe it points back to the end of chapter one. If you look at it there, it makes great sense. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those, that's angels, by the way, 
they, angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now to further that point, look at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 13 because verses 13 and 14, if you remember, uh, contrast against each other. What does verse 13 say? But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? See the contrast between the reigning Christ and the serving angels? Now to put it all in perspective, so you can see I think it does flow that way, begin at verse 7 and let's read through and see how it sounds to cut out 1 through 4 for a moment. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now to verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Now I think if you think about it, that flows in a lot more logical way. And, in fact, they're parallel. Because what is the ultimate argument made here? Not only that he is crowned with glory and honor, but that God is subjecting all things under his feet. What do we see in verses, chapter 1, verse 13? That to the Son it is said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This was said to no angel. Likewise, it is said to no angel now that you shall rule over the age to come and that all things will be placed under your feet. This is not said to angels. This is said to someone else. And so again, we see here the idea, I think, and how this flows. In fact, one commentator, Paul Ellingworth, said that really verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 are a digression. He interrupts his argument for a moment to hit home this point. Not to neglect so great a salvation. Now, why does he do that? Why does any preacher do that, right? I mean, that's hard to argue, except in that moment, inspired by the Spirit, he felt this is the time to make this plea. Don't drift away. Stay anchored to the truth. Do not neglect so great a salvation. And now I'm going to go on to a second point here, he says, that goes even beyond what I'd said earlier. Again, I want you to recognize it is not angels who will rule. It is not appointed to angels to rule the world or the age to come. It's not for them. It's for another. Now, as you think about this for a moment, this is exactly what's being argued in the first chapter. In fact, we could argue, we could ask the question in verse 5 why he says after saying the world to come, of which we speak, or of which we are speaking. Well, he's not really speaking of that so much in verses 2 through, or 2, 1 through 4, but he is speaking of it all throughout chapter 1. Who is it who has been elevated to the right hand of the Father? 
Who is it who is right now ruling and reigning in glory and honor? Who is the one in verse 13 who is sitting at the right hand of the Father? All things being put under His feet so that they are a footstool for His feet. Who is that spoken of? It's spoken of Christ. Now I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the argument, but that's what he's trying to draw together, I believe. Now, why does he need to circle back to this? Now, there is no way we can cover this well this morning or in a series of mornings. And so I'm just going to ask you to maybe jot down some scriptures and think about these things. But why is it important to establish that in the age to come, in this eschaton, in this messianic age, it is Christ who rules and reigns over everything? Why would a Jewish Christian need to hear this? Well, it has to do with the way Jews believed that God was administering the world. Now, this is something that Ed C. Scrolls testify to, uh, the Jewish rabbis testify to. You can read this in much Jewish writing. It's found in the Old Testament worldview of Israel that angels were administering over the nations on behalf of God, some of them in rebellion against God, but that angels administered over the nations. Now, where can we find this? If you would, and again, he's quoting or thinking of Deuteronomy uh, in the Septuagint, and oftentimes the wording is a little bit different, but I'm going to read to you from the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 9. Now, this comes from the Song of Moses. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy 32, this is the Song of Moses. And listen to what this says. This is fascinating. Moses sings, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of ages past. Ask thy father, he can tell thee. Thine elders, they can inform thee. When the Most High, this is God, divided the nations, when he dispersed the children of Adam, he settled the boundaries of the nations according to the numbers of the angels of God. And the Lord's portion was his people Jacob, Israel, was his lot of inheritance. Now, this gets into a lot of Jewish apocalyptic thought, but again, it was common Jewish thinking that, if you want to take the exact time they believe this happened, it was at Babel, when God scattered the people and gave them different languages. This created different people groups, and the people were scattered across the face of the earth, and he administered all those people according to the number of the angels. Now, again, this is an idea that's not really familiar to us. We don't talk about it in church much. Um, It doesn't come up very often, but it is coming up in the background here. Most commentators recognize that there is something to do with this in the background of the argument. You may remember actually at the very end of chapter 1, verse 14, we uh, had a sermon on aren't angels ministering spirits? We talked about the different roles and uh, functions that God has given angels, and one of them we said was this very thing, administrators in some way. Now, where else can you see that? Take a moment, if you will, and turn to Daniel chapter 10. This is the scriptures we use that day. Now remember, this angel is coming to Daniel in chapter 10, and he says, I have wanted to come to you, but I've been delayed. You remember this. And why was he delayed? Well, look at chapter 10, verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So there is this prince right? Uh, That is not a human prince withstanding an angelic figure. This is a prince who is withstanding this angel 
And when was he freed up to come? Michael, one of the chief princes, this is the archangel Michael, so clearly now we can interpret what prince means. It's a reference to angels in this sense. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And then if you were to go on to verse 20, I believe it is, it also mentions a prince of Greece that will come. Now, apocalyptic literature, not easy, not clear. Um, these things are difficult. It's very hard to base any doctrine on what you read here, other than though there is some sense in which there are principalities and powers and angelic forces at play in this text. That's long been recognized. And Paul uses those very terms, doesn't he? Principalities and powers. There is a spiritual realm, a spiritual battle going on in the present moment. It was going on in the days of Daniel. It's going on in our days today. Uh, the difference is the victory is made clear. Who will win this battle? Who has already won this battle? And so again, that is the author of Hebrews' argument. And he says, listen, in this age to come, what does he mean by that? He means this eschatological age, this messianic age, this age of rule under Christ it's under Christ. It's not under angels. There is no principality or power that can withstand him. He has defeated them. He has put them to shame, Paul says. He has defeated them. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here for a moment because he's going to argue this psalm makes this argument clear. And then look at verse 8, you might say B, after the end of his quotation from Psalm 8. He says, For that uh, for in that he put all in subjection under him. So in other words, that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. There is nothing that is outside of Christ's reign. Now Paul, when he says something like this, says, of course, except the one who gave him this authority, right? So again, the idea is he isn't somehow over God the Father or the Holy Spirit. God rules as a triune God, but Christ is pictured here in this special messianic kingship role as ru ruling over all created things. Why? Because He is the King. He is the King of glory. There is nothing that is not under His reign. Now, where has the author said things like that? Well, all through chapter 1, right? He is the heir of all things, the one through whom all things were made. He is the glorious and reigning King. And yet, look at what he says at the end. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, what is a reality that all things are under Christ isn't made clear by our plain sight yet. It's true already, and yet it's not yet fully evident to us. You might think about a war where the end is clear and obvious. I think it was said in World War II that when uh, the United States entered the war and took uh, Africa, North Africa, that Hitler was quoted as saying, I've got to make peace with either uh, the Soviets or the Americans. The problem is neither of them will make peace with me. He recognized then at that moment, once North Africa was lost, the war was already over. It was just how long could he drag it out? And yet in a very similar way, Satan is recognizing that his time is up. The battle is over. The uh, evil forces have already lost, even if uh, it isn't fully evident to us yet. They have lost. And so again, all of this is in the background. So Jesus rules the age to come. That's no small statement. That is a glorious and large statement. And again, the scriptures back it up. Does the author have a scripture in mind to back it up? Indeed he does. 
let's continue forward. Because that brings us to our second point. The author gives us a reference that he's going to use to uh, anchor this uh, statement to. So what is his statement again? That he did not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Well, to whom did he place it in subjection to? Well, we come to this quotation, but before we do, it's really interesting, isn't it? Again, you talk about a preacher's methodology. Uh, There's much written about how he introduces this quotation. He says, but one testified in a certain place. And uh, most of the commentators say, you know, it's really kind of cleaned up. We clean it up in our translations for the author. It says something more like somebody once said, you know. Uh, it's often how I feel like we're up here quoting sometimes. But, uh, but it's curious that he would quote it that way, isn't it? And so commentators lay down their various theories. Well, Maybe there, he's trying to de-emphasize the human author and because it's the Word of God. Could be. Could be. But sometimes preachers talk like this, right? Sometimes it's just a way of making a point. If we're trying to, to be a little bit sarcastic and making a point, we'll say, I think someone even said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Right? Well, I know who said that, right? We know Jesus stated that. I know that you know who stated it. My point is, it's obvious, right? It's obvious who stated it. Now, why do I think, if you ask me, I think that's what's happening here. He's trying to make the point that this is obvious who said this. Why would he do that? Well, first of all, Psalm 8's a pretty important psalm. You're telling me this author who is going through and quoting all over the scriptures doesn't know Psalm 8? What's more, he doesn't know who the someone is who wrote it? That's a psalm of David? Jews treasured David's psalms, often memorized David's psalms, but this author doesn't know who wrote these words? It's pretty hard to to believe that. And so again, I think it is much more likely he's trying to make a point here. He's trying to say, I don't know, someone once said something. Well, why would that be so important a point? Because David is the great king of Israel. He is the one to whom the promise was made of a coming future ruler under whose feet all things will be placed. His heir and Lord. I think he's trying to make the point. Who was it who said that? Oh yeah, it was David. You know, No less an authority than David himself, the man to whom God made this promise. So again, is that what he's up to? That's where I'd put uh, my guess. But it really doesn't matter. And we come to this, look at what he says. He quotes Psalm 8. Now we could read it there again, but let's actually turn to Psalm 8. It's not a long psalm. Psalm 8, to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. Now listen to what he says. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. As we consider this psalm, it's interesting. When David wrote this psalm, uh, this author is saying this is clearly a messianic psalm, clearly about Christ. And yet, maybe some Jews at the time would have said, did we ever consider that a messianic psalm? Well, whether or not they did in the Old Testament, it's clear the New Testament authors did, because not only does the author of Hebrews use it, but Paul uses it multiple times to establish that this is speaking of Christ. Now, what did it mean in its original meaning, if you will? Well, again, it's talking about the creation. It's thinking about the glory of all that God has created and the power of God to create it. And it's thinking about mankind in light of the creation. You ever want to feel small? Where do you go? Stand before the ocean. Stand in a beautiful valley. Stand on a mountaintop. Look at the vastness and the glory of what God has created, and you'll begin to feel pretty small. And David, as he writes this, asks this question, God, who created all these things, in glory created all the universe, all the moon and the stars, everything we look at, you created all of it. What is man that you are mindful of him? See what David is thinking? Why would God consider us? Why would he care about us? Why would he waste one moment on human beings? And yet he did. That's clearly what it says here. For you made him lower than the angels. Again, that's true in one sense, isn't it? For sure. We talked about angels in chapter 1 as kind of a dividing line. That that is greater than angels are heavenly forces. The angels themselves are. That which is below them are earthly. We spoke about that in chapter 1. They're kind of a, a, a dividing line. He says human beings were made lower than the angels. We're not as powerful as the angels. And yet something else is to be said, which is this. And yet you crowned him with glory and honor. What honor was man crowned with? He was given dominion over the created world in which he lived. We can go back to Genesis and read that, can't we? Adam was put in dominion over the garden. He was its caretaker. He was its minister, if you will. He had the authority given by God to name the animals. He was given authority over creation. And that's what it says here. Over the work of your hands. God, you created all this, and yet you bestowed it under the authority or uh, conservatorship, if you will, of man. He goes on to say, all things under his feet, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the seas. Now, in a very real way, that is all marred, isn't it? And even lost, in a sense, in the fall and the uh, consequenting curse. Doesn't quite go as it did for Adam. We're not able to grow the things of the earth the way he did. It's in labor and toil that anything comes forth. The animals are no longer subject to us in the same way. Go into the middle of the Serengeti and see how well you do against charging lions and rhinos and elephants, right? It's not quite as it was. Not quite as it was. But David, who wrote this in wonder that God ever considered mankind, 
also has another theme in here, doesn't he? That what once was shall be again. It's not stated very clearly here, but the New Testament authors saw it, inspired by the Spirit, saw that this is talking about something that once was, but something that is going to occur again. Why? Well, look as they read it, what they noticed. There's a parallel phrase here in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? They said the son of man, that is another word for man, but there's a very important person that used that term about himself over and over again. Our Lord, our Messiah, our King. And was he made lower than the angels? In his incarnation, did he take on a tent of flesh? So again, that's part of the argument we're going to see here in Hebrews. I don't want to jump too far ahead into his interpretation. But his argument is, when he took on flesh, the man Christ, still fully God, did not give up his divinity, but speaking of him in terms of an heir of David, as a man, as a king, the man who would become king, he says, in this sense, there is a way in which we can say he was lesser or lower than the angels. That's why in verse 4, of chapter 1, it says what? He became greater than the angels. That means by the reckoning of the author of Hebrews, there was a time in his humanity that he was not greater than the angels. Now, you remember we dealt with that at the time. That's been a while back, hasn't it? A while back, maybe something like 11 sermons back. But we dealt with it. We tried to wrestle with what that means. How can the one who is eternally the Son, eternally glorious, eternally the King eternally greater than the angels, be said that he just now became heir, became king, was enthroned, became greater than the angels. Well, this is speaking something of this incarnate mission of Christ. We're going to do a little bit more of this again next Sunday morning. I don't want to get too much into it today, but recognize for a moment, this is what he's saying. When they looked at this, they said, Jesus, who was greater than the angels, did for a time, did for a time become lower than the angels. Now, I don't know about your Bibles, but some Bibles have an asterisk and says something uh, made for a little while. There's different uh, ways of translating that. But again, Jesus, who was made for a time lower than the angels, you have now crowned him with glory and honor. That's the entire exposition of chapter 1. The one who came into this world and by himself or in his body purged our sins and became greater than the angels as he has by inheritance received a more excellent name than they. He has been crowned with honor and glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the reigning king. The one who was lower than the angels is now greater than the angels. The one who was in this world an earthly king has become glorious beyond all measures, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, how did that happen? We're going to look at this next Sunday, but it goes back to what Paul was getting at last week in that great song in Revelation that Christ is worthy of all glory and honor. Why? Because He, well, really, goes to the cross, right? But we'll get back to that. We're going to come back to that next week. I don't want to get too much sidetracked. Again, they looked at this and they said, all these things are speaking of Jesus. Not just the Adamic control of Eden under his feet, but now all things under the feet of Jesus. Now you say, well, David doesn't really say that there. 
Well, my friends, the inspired New Testament authors say he did say that there. And we need to go with their interpretation. Anytime the New Testament authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, give you the proper interpretation, that is where you put your confidence. And besides, let's recognize another important fact. If we were to turn to Psalm 110, which we just saw quoted in chapter 1, verse 13, David said something very parallel. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's clearly spoken of the Messiah, and it's a parallel argument. All things shall be put under the feet of this messianic king who David recognized was coming from his line. Why? Because God told him so. God made a covenant with David and said, I will build you a house and the one that comes from you shall rule forevermore. His reign shall have no end. And David said, well, the Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, my descendant, my heir, but my Lord, he said to him, sit at his right hand, the place of authority and rule until I put all things under your feet again. I guarantee you if we could speak to David and one day we will be able to, David will tell you, Yep, Psalm 8 is parallel to Psalm 110. Christ will rule and reign. What was lost in Adam will be restored in Christ. In fact, let me go further. What was lost in Adam has already been restored in Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews uh, anticipates some mocking there and says, well, it's not fully evident to us yet, but it is the case. Christ currently rules over everything. One day it will be evident. Without question, you will see it. It will be obvious. But even now, he does. My friends, you could go on a side exposition there of the confidence that should give us in this age, though it looks chaotic. Christ rules and reigns. My friends, I'm going to hit this point very quickly because we're going to go into this in more detail next week. How can we be sure that this is correct? Well, just simply look at the interpretation. The author doesn't leave it to you to have to wonder, how is he using this? Look at what he says, beginning in the second half of verse 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. There is nothing outside the rule and reign in creation of the Creator. He rules and reigns over everything. But we do not yet see all things put under him. It's not obvious to us. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Do you see how he interprets Psalm 8 as being about Jesus? Just as the psalmist David was picturing one who would be made lower than the angels and then crowned with honor and glory and all things put under his feet, he tells you who that is. Verse 9, it is Jesus. He was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death and then crowned with glory and honor. The exact wording of Psalm 8. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now my friends, as we move forward, the author of Hebrews is really going to be expositing this idea. Why was this necessary? Why was this important? Why was this the plan of God? Why did God do this? It was necessary. It was necessary. And he's going to make this argument. But what I want you to think about today is the message of of what the author of Hebrews is giving us here. 
There is a dividing line. We're going to see it again tonight in Matthew chapter 9 as a glorious miracle occurs and some people marvel at this miracle. And the Pharisees who have made themselves the enemies of God say, no, he's doing this by evil powers. We're going to look at it tonight. You know this passage. Our sermon is called Some Marvel, Some Malign, and it's still true in the world today. There's a dividing line here. We talked about it in First and Second Thessalonians. There's a dividing line, and it's pictured yet again here. Christ will rule and reign. All things put in subjection under His feet. All people recognize the glory of Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Paul says in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. My friends, we need to recognize that Christ is the glorious King of all. And you are His subject or you are His enemy. Now we could go in depth, couldn't we? We could start a whole other sermon on what that means to be His enemy. And what the consequences will be for that. They are not pleasant. They are horrendous. The scriptures warn us over and over again what it will mean to be found in Adam. To be outside of Christ on that day of judgment. What this author is trying to remind these hearers of is that very thing. If violating the old covenant mediated by angels and Moses brought severe consequences, what will the consequences be if you turn your back on the Son of God? Our only hope, our only rescue, our only mediator that can reconcile us to a holy and righteous God. My friends, if you are found to be His enemy on that day, it will be disaster. Worse than that. But there's also a word of hope here, isn't there? If you are His, if you are in Him, my friends, you shall rule and reign with Him. That is found elsewhere in the uh, Scriptures, and we'll be looking at that as well. It's not just let back in, right, reconciled to God in the sense of being a lowly servant. It pleases God to make us co-heirs with Christ. Ruling and reigning with Him in a way that has us back over the angels as He extends this idea to all believers being crowned with honor and glory in Christ. Paul says elsewhere, do you not know that you shall judge angels? What does that mean? Good luck. (laughs) But I mean, you can take it as basic level right at its basic level we would put in a position of authority the author of hebrews says recognize in whose authority we will stand we will stand in christ's authority the one psalm 8 is primarily picturing the one who has already restored what was lost in adam the one in whom we must trust for reconciliation and deliverance and life eternal This glorious king. I want to close with just one last thought. He says that we do not yet see all things put under him. Not all things. We see some things put under him, don't we? Where do we see some things put under him? Well, how about right here? How about in the church? Where people give up a Sunday morning, right, in which they could do a million other things. 
They come here to sing praises to a holy and righteous king, to hear his letters written to us, that we might understand him better and serve him better and obey him better and love him more. Why do we do that? Because we already recognize what's being said here. He is the king of glory. And we are blessed to be his faithful servants. My friends, what we look forward to is the day when all things will be visibly put under his feet. What a day that will be.